Welcome to Nudge Talk Asia, behavioral science insights that improve business and lives. Here's your host, Paolo Mercado. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Nudge Talk Asia from Ogilvy Consulting, bringing you behavioral insights that improve business and lives. I'm Paolo Mercado, Vice President of Behavioral Science at Ogilvy Consulting. Today, we're chatting with researcher, designer, and educator at Quotient Design Research and Associate Consulting Professor at Stanford University, Mr. Michael Barry. Michael is with us today to discuss powering up innovation with design thinking and the role of behavioral insights in the innovation process. Welcome, Michael. I'm really, really glad that you agreed to this podcast. Thank you, Paolo. It's a pleasure to be here. Michael, uh, could you tell our audience a little bit about your story? And how did you become a design thinking and innovation research expert? Oh, my. Uh, I feel as though I sort of took the back way <laughs> towards becoming a research expert. I started as a designer and engineer. Graduating out of Stanford, I wanted to create stuff. And over the years of designing things, I discovered that often we would make really nice things that nobody wanted. Mm. <laughs> and more and more... That became a concern for me, and part of the Stanford program had been a course called Need Finding. This was in the 1970s, and over the years, I, I was involved in, in some of the emerging research that was happening in the Valley, looking at Need Finding, and the goal was how do we actually create products that people need, as opposed to products we can sell or products that follow a trajectory. So over the last 20 years, I think applying approaches primarily from anthropology and certainly approaches that I think were pioneered in the UK in advertising. And I think in the D school, taking sort of my original roots in design and beginning to recognize there were tools within design that could help many different fields, including a more creative approach to trying to understand people, not just what they do, but importantly, why they do what they do. And that has led us to both my consulting practice and what I teach at Stanford. Oh, great. Could you tell us a little bit more about need finding, you know, and, and what you do at Stanford? What exactly does that mean? Oh, my. You know, need finding. This was a premise from Bob McKim looking in the 1960s. Oh, the program started in the 50s, but in about the 1960s, we were creating many, many products, some that we were having to sell, meaning if I have enough advertising, I can maybe create a need in people to get it. Yeah. And Bob felt that was pretty inefficient. The other strategy was a, a kind of technology trajectory meaning we'll follow a trajectory of the technology, not of what people need. And hopefully we will eventually connect. People will find a use for that technology. Also equally inefficient. Bob had the simple premise that if we understand what people need and make requests of technology, that can radically alter the likelihood of success, meaning design things in concert with people's needs. Now, that sounds pretty straightforward. You just ask them, what do you need? Uh, and they'll tell you and you'll make something. And I wish it was that easy. If only it was that easy. But that was the premise. And that has, we have been working on that certainly for about the last 30 years. And I think we have hopefully gotten a little more sophisticated about how we ask people 
about those needs. But that's the central piece. And with the understanding that often people cannot tell you directly what they need. And this is where it gets it gets interesting and the approaches to understanding people have evolved. So my question is in your need finding process or your techniques that you use, how do you unearth these unmet or unarticulated needs that, uh, as you said, when you ask people directly, what do you need? They may say something, but that may not be it. So how do you get into the underlying need beyond what people say top of mind when you ask them directly? Well, I'm going to give you the quick answer to that one because there's probably about a 10-week course (laughs) that answers that question in detail. I'd say in large measure, we don't simply ask people questions. And there's a whole world of, of questionnaires and they serve a, a certain purpose. But part, and when I said we, we have emerged from the world of anthropology, anthropologists spend time in people's lived environments. This is really, really important in that we look for people to essentially provide guidance within lived experiences. So it's not just I ask a question, I get an answer. And we would argue most of that exists on a script. People have scripts that they share with each other. And those scripts are the often the answers that they know are acceptable. They are pleasing. They are what you want to hear. Our job is to find ways to get people off of those scripts, meaning this is we want to get them into that messy world of contradictions where They are saying one thing and potentially doing another, but we want them to get as close to the doing as possible so that when they begin to narrate the experience, both what's outside, what am I doing, but what I'm feeling. And here's the important piece. We want to get them to a world of stories. What are the stories that you have in association with the behaviors, the beliefs, the concerns, the delights? you have in relation to certain experiences. And it's within those stories that you start to see the needs. And the the stories are often off script. People don't understand why they're telling you this story, but it's a story that, and again, we talked about there's what people do, the details, why they do what they do are embedded in these stories. Now, this is certainly an interpretive act and you're going back and forth and we're looking for And here's the other important thing, and this gets to this issue of culture, back to anthropology. What you find in anthropology is these stories are often shared throughout the culture. It's not just an individual story, what is referred to as a schema. You're looking at a broader cultural story. For Americans, this is often tough to believe. Oh my goodness, I'm acting in relation to a larger cultural narrative. Ooh, <laughs> but that is more broadly accepted in other cultures, meaning that's, that doesn't come as such a surprise. But we look for those larger cultural stories that then allow us to generalize needs and potentially what to do about those needs across a much larger section of people. To reflect back on what you said, so it's not simply a matter of asking people directly what do you need. First of all, you're doing your insight and research work in context, first of all, by trying to get as close as possible to to seeing and observing what people do, and then to ask them to reflect on what you observe they're actually doing, but to relate it 
in story format. And it, in fact, I, I had the, the, the privilege of working with you and with your colleague when you helped my insight team train on, on capturing stories. And I must say that it was quite innovative and eye-opening for, for my team to do it. But it's all actually quite difficult to capture the stories. How do you not only get people to share the stories, but how do you transform the stories into, let's say, a springboard for innovation? I want to go back a little about the environment of collecting the stories. There has been a shift in our research over the years in terms of, I'll call it the nature of how you do that. And I would say there has been a world of extractive research. And what I mean by that extractive is you ask a question and and often if the question is on script, meaning I'm going to ask someone, oh, how often do you have coffee? I suspect there isn't a lot of emotional (laughs) baggage tied to coffee. So you'll probably get an answer that if you spent time in someone's home, those things would line up. If, however, you ask someone, oh, how, how much television or how much YouTube now do you watch? I guarantee you the answer, they will underreport how much. Because there's an anxiety of, oh, yeah, I watch a you know, few minutes of YouTube. And when you discover, oh, my goodness, that's like four hours a day. <laughs> so the question is, gee, that disconnect, meaning I've asked a question that there's a large emotional, I'd say, burden tied to the answer to that question. And when I say there's a script, the answer of, oh, I watch 20 minutes a day. Yeah. That's on script. That's knowing the right answer. And we're looking at getting people off that. Now, there are versions of what I'll call a little predatory where we, and this is often police use extractive techniques where I'm going to force you to answer in a way that's often uncomfortable and you may not want to give that answer. We do not recommend that. That, that is there. You may get data, but it's really problematic. It's around where I now am essentially forcing or tricking you to give me answers to stuff that you're not comfortable with for whatever reason. I think we're looking at in our work is something that's much closer to what would be called therapy and arguably Rogerian therapy, but it's less about the therapeutic technique than the approach of creating a safe holding space where, and here's the key thing, you as an interviewer, as a need finder, are going on a journey with an informant. You're not extracting the information from them and leaving them by the roadside. You are going along the journey with them. And that does take time Mm. where you're building trust. And you talked about how do we do this? And a lot of it is, and we, we have terms like active listening, helping, and going through that journey both from uh, broad issues around just understanding areas in their life, how those things make sense, what excites them, what makes them feel anxious, and move towards the topic, meaning, and if we're interested in eating food, eating a particular kind of food, we will find our way there. But after a period where you've built enough trust that we're on this issue together, and then as complicated, and you use the term reflection, and this is exactly right, Uh, There's a world of reflective approaches where you begin to explore these issues off script, where now stories, and we often refer to this as emergent interviewing, where stories emerge, 
and you get to begin to explore what's important about this story for you. So it isn't simply, I I get the story and now independently analyze it and take it apart. That is often done in conjunction with the informant about what's important about this story, what did we miss, and what potentially does this story mean? So just to step back, I mentioned this history. We think of needs in terms of use, usability, and meaning. There was a world of extractive interviewing around use. What are use cases? Use case interviews. What, what's the use case? And we get the use case and now we're done. Thank you. I got a use case and now I'll make something for it. There was a, then a world of what I would refer to as creative interviewing where I was looking for a new connection, a new connection whereby I could reduce friction in the product I'm making. Mm. This is also, you can still pretty much stay on script around that kind of interviewing. But the last kind where we're beginning to understanding meaning, why are you doing what you're doing? This is the emergent interview where now I would say our our palette (laughs) as designers, the innovation palette is culture itself. And This journey of understanding why begins to offer a sense, certainly for designers, marketers, a much broader palette of opportunities. That's the goal, not just simply to make a a better, faster connection with a product, but relative to innovation, provide a much different opportunity set you can kind of use for creative solutions. I'm getting so much from this, Michael. So one thing that triggered me was when you said uh, extractive research. And then Mm. I remember, you know, going (laughs) into my early market research training and people taught us techniques of laddering where you keep asking why until people are so tired. And and even terms like insight mining. And then you get into something then you say, okay, you get to the very bottom where they can't say anything. And that's the gold. And oftentimes it's not. They're just they're just answering you because they're they, they yeah. want to get rid of you. <laughs> but also what you said struck me because one of my questions was going to be how do you use behavioral insight techniques? But you've already mentioned anthropology, you've mentioned Rogerian, let's say, techniques of creating unconditional positive regard when you're getting people to be very comfortable and essentially they're opening up emotionally. To you and those emotions are captured in stories. And so it, it, it's quite rich because then you're moving beyond the, let's say, the question and answer rational way of, of extracting people's reasons and into more emotional, motivational territories as well. The other thing, there was a second part to your question, and it was, I would suggest an analysis. And, and I, I said, oh, we are on this journey together. But it certainly doesn't end their meaning. There is a whole world of analysis and coding. And that has recently actually become quite a complicated term in the social sciences in that that, and we can, again, (laughs) weeks of, of course, on methods of coding the kind of stories and information we get. And here's one important thing. The reason it's gotten complicated is now there is an entire world of coding tied to AI and machine learning, where I'm taking information, and it could be from questionnaires, could be from interviews, and I'm trying to code it for machine learning. The the important thing to note in that kind of coding is you want to break down word structure in, you want to atomize it, you want to make it as, as small, repeatable, 
as possible, meaning you decontextualize, you take out everything but the tiniest essence that a computer is able to grab onto and reliably recognize. This is literally the opposite of how we want to code social science, which is I want to code it in the largest story form that captures all of the complexities. And this is where our world is coding themes and stories and often referred to as thematic coding. The other is often referred to as a priori coding, where I'm taking, I'm boiling it down into the smallest little buckets possible that I can reliably get a machine to code. So these are two radically different approaches to coding. Most of the design thinking tools, and you know, we talk about two by twos and customer journey maps, all these things, these are all forms of coding. These are all forms of helping me assign different kinds of meaning to the stories, experiences people have so that I can begin to see patterns. So there's a whole world now of that within our work. And we certainly, and when I was talking about, you know, machine learning have a different approach to coding, we are not, we support big data and big data analysis, but arguably it's very much about accurately looking at what people do. The other side the thematic coding is the partnering that gets you to the why people do what you do in a very, and, and, and at this point, we only human beings seem to be able to do that. <laughs> we have some job security, at least for a year or two, until, until computers can do that. But we, it seems like stories are a very tricky thing. And we often refer, and, and you've, you've pointed this out, they're the words, and there's the music under the words, the emotions the loading, it's moving beyond the words to the emotions and stories, the analysis of that, the coding of that, that we see as most important and takes time and effort to learn how to do as well. How long does it take someone to learn your techniques? I mean, you, you, you mentioned a 10-week course, but I assume that it takes more than just a 10-week <laughs> course to actually master the technique. So well, when you get people joining, you know, quotient design research, how long does it take them to become really quite good at this need finding and story, if I may call it that, story coding techniques? The answer is a tricky one. And the answer is it depends. And it depends on people's backgrounds. So one thing, uh, we have a team and a team of very diverse backgrounds, everything from people like me who started as an engineer, and I'd say engineers... That's, they're going to take the longest. <laughs> they're going to take the longest. But I also have, I have people from comparative literature, history, anthropology, and these people, their disciplines, they are immersed in these ideas for a very long time. So then when they come to these techniques, it's almost second nature. The idea of, oh, I need to interpret a story and that will help me materialize reality. Of course, that makes sense. Often for engineers, I'm speaking for my group, that's a very challenging idea. The notion of, you know, I'm holding, you know, a mouse. This is this. This is this. What do you mean this tells a story? I don't understand that. Often we have to spend a great deal of time helping designers and engineers understand that the physical world has many, it's not, it's not just simply a process. There are many forces at play within culture. And, and we're having to understand how those forces 
are affecting behavior and informing our relationship. Because when I use this mouse, I'm also engaged in a story. I'm not just getting things done. I'm, and I'm engaged in a story with a brand, with Apple and how it makes me feel. Every time I click a cursor, it's being reinforced by a larger set of stories. Now, also, I think, and advertisers, you guys know this, this is your life's blood, right? Yeah. But I'm also aware that often for engineers, project managers, sometimes leaders of companies who have deep financial knowledge, but this kind of cultural knowledge doesn't come easily and often goes against kind of linear views of how the world should work. Can I jump on this topic of culture? You've done projects in the US with you know Silicon Valley startups, but you've also done innovation projects in Latin America and of course in Asia, so in more developing market contexts. So what are the cultural differences that you need to consider in the practice of design thinking and need finding in Western countries versus Asian countries? Are there insight techniques that work better? Are there things in terms of how you, I use the term, but are able to get the stories that work better in Asia than in the West? This is a great question and a challenging one because on the one hand, I would counsel people never to overgeneralize <laughs> about culture. You need to understand the specifics, but I will, for you, Paolo, engage in some generalizations. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'll do that. And, and this is coming both from our work, but also from student work. I've had the good fortune to teach in China and Chile and a number of different countries and see how different students react to some of these tools. And, and I think that the starting point is, and let's broadly talk about kind of Western cultures and Asian cultures. And if you, Hazel Marcus, a cultural psychologist at Stanford, has done a lot of work understanding these broad differences with lots of good experimental data, but our experiences bear this out. And I'd say there are Design thinking is a juggling act. You're constantly juggling. And what are you juggling? Well, you're juggling thinking and doing. Thinking and doing. And to the thinking part, I'll say it's learning, but there's a, a learning, thinking, analysis component, and then, then there's a synthetic doing component. Mm. You're constantly juggling these two things. East and West respond to these two things very differently. There's one other component, and just to Simplify design thinking, you're also juggling alignment and disruption. Alignment is how do I connect what I'm doing, the technology, the service, the meaning, the usability? How do I create a thread that aligns, that aligns all of these things relative to cultural norms, what is expected? And then there's disruption. There's disruption. And disruption is, I'm going to do it completely differently. I'm going to create no value and completely blow up the market and how we think about it. You're juggling both of those things. So you could see this as kind of two vectors that you're constantly juggling. And what I found is typically Asian countries, both students and companies within these, are much better at the learning side, the analysis side, the idea of taking it apart understanding all the interconnections, and there is required a lot of creativity in that as well. I found less Western countries are happy to find these complex connections. But then on the doing, I've often had students say, yes, I have this idea, but it, 
really shouldn't exist in the market. Like, I, I don't have any confidence in the doing. I better do more research. <laughs> I better do more research. Right. Americans, I've found it in particular, like I have this idea, it should exist in the world. Let's just do. <laughs> so I would say often you find the Western countries are happy to do and pick up the pieces later. So the sense of, again, being able to juggle and I find the different cultures are happy to stay on one more on one side of, of that balance than the other versus what we need to do. And this is why multidisciplinary teams trying to juggle. The last pit, Asian countries and typically are much more comfortable with alignment, this idea of harmony. Mm, yes. And innovation often means I am going to take something from someplace else and kind of align it to my culture. That is innovation. And that is perfectly acceptable. And I know that is often the definition our Asian students have of what innovation means. I'm going to align it, something else that has been successful, I'm going to align it to our culture versus a more Western Silicon Valley view, which is disrupt. <laughs> disrupt. And this kind of disruption has certain kinds of creative value and shock, there are often unintended consequences from this. Once again, the need to juggle these things and to recognize the contradictions that exist between these two, good design team, a good organization needs to resolve, needs to resolve relative to the culture you are in. And lastly, and I mentioned it earlier, and Hazel Marcus has really good evidence that most Asian cultures are very aware of the multiplicity of different points of view that make up the world. And this is in communication theory. It's known as a, a receiver focus, meaning I am aware that my message, when it's received, I'm going to need to tailor it to the culture it's being received in. So I need to modify and change the message that's being received. This is typically Asian cultures are very sensitive to how a message is going to be received, and I'm willing to change that message to fit versus a Western sender communication mindset, which is, I have my point of view, I am who I am, and I'm just going to send it out as it is, take it or leave it. And what's interesting is often in Western points of view, there's less sensitivity to the multifaceted cultural world that these messages are going to arrive in. So again, within a design environment, the ability to juggle both of these things, because they can both be strengths and they can both be weaknesses. So for me, it's helping our students recognize these differences and recognize where they can draw strength from each other. I'd like to speak more about what you mentioned on disruption, because one of the things that design thinking does very well is not only create innovations that address needs, but they actually create innovation that fundamentally can change behavior, and many times behavior at scale. But sometimes they also lead to unexpected and undesirable behavioral change. So how can innovators better understand the long-term behavioral impact of their innovations before launching? Or is that even possible? You are asking, I would argue, the question of the early 21st century. The answer I want to move towards is recognizing when we say the unintended consequences, 
what are the unintended consequences right now we are most aware of? And I would suggest there have been a, a couple of approaches. Uh, and I mentioned that under usability, we've wanted to remove friction. And normally that's perceived as a good thing. I want to make something easier to use, more accessible. There's also been a desire, a desire to increase turns of an experience. And there are shortcuts to doing that. I essentially want to make our products craveable. I want to make them something that people just can't live without. That's been the, the dream of marketers. What you're talking about is I'm creating addictive products. Yay, I want to make it an addictive product, and I want to remove all friction from access to its use. What could go wrong? <laughs> what could <Yeah>. go wrong? <laughs> and I would suggest we're now in a world where, oh, and lastly, I can do those two things and I can do them at scale. I can affect millions of people with the push of a button. I'm no longer working in the kind of physical world of, of these products where if I sell 100,000, I am networked to millions of people at the push of a button. And now we're seeing, this is the other thing, we're now seeing a world of, I would say, entities, platform entities who have a very different competitive model than traditional companies have had. And everything they do is looking at removing friction, creating addictive products that will operate at scale. So it's within these entities that we meet, have to ask the question. I apologize for the long answer, but this comes back to Bob McKim, who said, you need to design for the whole person. This was something really critical. You need to design for the whole person. And the whole person includes asking what will improve their lives, not just increase <laughs> clicks, throughput, increase network effects. And in particular, scale-free networks are the ideal now of most platform companies. We want to create scale-free networks, and this all operates on positive feedback loops, unending positive feedback loops. This is where we need to start to question when you discover this is the space you're operating in, are you in fact designing for the whole person? Should there be certain kinds of friction that enable me to actually make choices? So here's, here's a question. Is the scale I'm creating literally what's necessary to survive? Most platforms scale as a way to survive. I have to have scale in order to outcompete versus my scale emerges organically from the values, the appropriateness that I find in interacting and being a part of the story you're telling. And this gets back to, from our perspective, that set of why questions, the meanings I want to participate in, not I'm forced to participate in, but I have a choice. So I would suggest the unintended consequences, are you still genuinely offering a choice about how I want to live my life? And am I allowing me in, in what I'm offering to grow as a person? And that's an ethical issue. And that's, that's <laughs> mileage may vary on that outlook, but it's about asking designers, marketers, people who now have phenomenal power, unlike anything I had when I started out in this business, it's beginning to ask questions and beginning to look. You said very clearly, what are the unintended consequences at scale? 
and that we now have some different responsibilities as designers. And we may need to say, this isn't the best way to offer our product or service. We think there are other ways that are more in alignment with serving the whole human being. You're saying a lot of things that actually makes me question a lot of the things that being taught or valued in marketing right now. So for example, design thinking is often conflated with agile, you know, agile methodologies, et cetera. And the thought behind it is that design thinking is a magic formula to get to innovation launch, from, uh, to get an idea to launch faster. You know, so it's about getting things faster. But what you're actually saying is that if we are to consider the whole person, then we have to really almost take a pause to that mindset of fast innovation and to really take a look at the consequences of an innovation, especially if we're going to scale it to as broad a population as, as we could nowadays. In classic design thinking, yes and. I want to add a yes and to what you just said, because it's exactly right. When you scale in that fashion for a platform, I am making you utterly dependent on what I offer and are creating both addiction and removing friction from that addiction. As we are now seeing with our young people, that isn't sustainable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not sustainable and it is not resilient. Any change in that environment, it, it requires this kind of scale-free network, requires huge amounts of energy and attention, and it isn't sustainable from a human standpoint, as we're seeing any kind of addiction isn't sustainable. What you've described, that pause, suggests a much more resilient, sustainable approach to serving people. And I would say that longer term, that sense of we're, not, we're no longer playing kind of these finite games of winning big and getting out. We're looking at a different kind of, and this is coming from a world of, of, of James Carse, who modeled the world in finite and infinite games. And an infinite game is one where it needs to be sustainable, resilient. It can experience many kinds of challenges and still serve us well. And I feel as though that has been an interesting, as I'm sort of the third era of my career, this is, I think, what we are trying to, in this exploration of why, of, of using therapeutic techniques, it's in service of that. It's in service of that infinite, much more sustainable approach to connecting to people and serving them. I have a final question, Michael, but I, I feel that you've already partly answered it or greatly answered it, which is, how do you see design thinking evolving in the next five to 10 years? Or perhaps to phrase it in another way, how would you want design thinking to evolve in the next five to 10 years? Well, there's what I would like and, and what I'm seeing. And there is a huge tension and you flagged it. And, and this is this sense that design thinking can be a magic bullet that in this very short period of time, going through a few steps, I'm going to get answers that I can apply and scale without much consideration or thought. And I have many, many clients for whom this is the go-to and the sense of, oh, we'll, we'll have, you know, we'll do a day of research and then we'll, you know, do analysis in some sprints and then we will just crank it out and disrupt. And if I'm within a platform, that maybe is a, that discussion of this evolution of platforms. My value proposition doesn't much matter. I need to simply hold on to people's attention. 
and keep them engaged. And if I'm big enough, like the dinosaurs, if I'm big enough, I will dominate my competitive environment. What I'm hoping, the other approach, which is, I'd say, a different set of rules. So at this point, we're seeing that strategy, but there is a strategy of thinking much more about serving people in niche ways, not simply through scale. And this is more, and the technology is also allowing us to do this, both in terms of communication, manufacturing, that I can more closely tailor my services, my products to a much smaller community with a sense that I can leverage, and this is a, rather than a scale-free network, we're talking about you know small worlds networks, that I am using information to connect what we do in a very different way. And this is my hope that, so there used to be a, a sense, a truism in development that you wanted to reduce labor. Labor saving, labor saving was the mantra. And if I create labor saving devices, that's good. No labor at all. And what we've seen is, wow, <laughs> that's not sustained. You to at a certain point, taking jobs away, giving like literally labor saving may not be sustainable. For the 21st century, the new mantra may be, I want to increase the amount of labor but I want the labor to be fulfilling and satisfying. And that is going to be looked at in a, I'd say, a much smaller, more specific cultural way. I love your point about this isn't about moving as fast as possible. This is about a deeper understanding and allowing that understanding to guide what it is you choose to do. That's the world I'm hoping can emerge. But right now, there's an enormous tension between these two things. Wow, Michael, this, this has been a very, very eye-opening and inspiring conversation and provocative as well. So it's really, thank you. Thank you very much for your time and being on the show with us to talk about powering up or maybe even improving the way we innovate with design thinking and behavioral insights. Again, thank you very much, Michael, for your time. And to our audience, if you've enjoyed your time listening to the show today, please make sure to subscribe and be on the lookout for new episodes wherever you find your podcasts. And while you're at it, please rate the show and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Paolo Mercado, and this has been Nudge Talk Asia. From Ogilvy Consulting, bringing you behavioral insights that improve business and life. Thank you. Thank you.